or chapter 5, chapter 12. If you turn to 5, we're going to be here a long time. This letter to Hebrew believers in the first century focuses primarily on the supremacy of, of Jesus Christ. And in the letter, Jesus is presented as the, uh, the superior revelation, as the superior man, as the, uh, the only savior, as, as the great apostle, the high priest, the superior servant and son and, and mediator and giver of faith. He's shown to us as God in human flesh. Everybody who's heard the book of Hebrews read, everybody who's read it on their, their own has come across uh, just rich passages that deal with the supremacy of Christ, his extraordinary nature and work. And likewise, every person who has read the book has come across a number of passages dealing with warnings not to just dismiss who Jesus is, not to callously turn away, to close off your heart, but to repent of sin and, and to trust in him. As we finish up chapter 12 today, we are coming to the last great warning of the book. Uh, the next couple of weeks as we finish up chapter 13, what we're going to see is instructions for life in Christ, instructions for life in the church. But the 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 uh, the theological teaching is done and so the author makes one last passionate appeal to his listeners he has written to those who are uncommitted who are undecided who are uninterested as well as those who are in christ who are struggling in their faith because of suffering and other circumstances of life so we're going to be in hebrews chapter 12 We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 29. Father, we ask that as we come to your word, you would open our eyes and open our ears, grant us faith, and grant us the the transformation that comes through the scriptures when the Holy Spirit takes them and applies them to our lives. Help us to submit ourselves to your spirit. And Lord, I ask that where I am not submissive and and where any of us are not submissive, that you would just break through, that you wouldn't take our no as an answer. And we thank you for that in Jesus' holy name. Amen. We begin with, with Mount Sinai. We begin with this tale of two mountains, Mount Sinai and, and Mount Zion. Mount Sinai is presented to us as a mountain of judgment. Verses 18 through 21, we see this, For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness, and to gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them, for they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that that, that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. So he begins this picture with Mount Zion. Mount Zion, or I'm sorry, Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is where the law was given. It's a physical mountain on the Sinai Peninsula in modern day Egypt. By the time the first century had come around, and and perhaps long before that, the Jewish people had come to view Mount Sinai in kind of a romantic way. 
instead of the reality of what it was. They, they looked at it and they said, this is where God brought his people out of Egypt, the people that he loved, and he brought them to his holy mountain and he, he poured out his love upon them and we receive the oracles of, of God. That's not the, the story that we read in Exodus when the people come and it's, it's not what is rehearsed for us here. The truth is that even when their ancestors stood there, Mount Sinai was not a, a desirable place to be. It was not an attractive place to be. The point that he wants to make here is that those who remain camped at Sinai remain lost in their sins. Now, the, the basic problem with Sinai, and, and before we look at the text, let me just give you a, a few points to consider. First, Sinai incites rebellion and sin. While Moses was up on the mountain receiving the law, the people were down below the mountain breaking the law. The very presence of God incites sinners to rebellion. Sinai spurs sinful pride and self-sufficiency. Those who camp there, those who live at the base of Sinai, assume their ability to keep the law. They assume, I'm here because I'm good. I'm here because God has given this to me and I can do this. Sinai encourages a deadly redefinition of holiness. The truth is that the law of God that has been given to us filters out sin uh, to, to such a fine degree that nobody can stand. That's why David said, if, Lord, if you count sin, if you hold us against us, if you look at our lives and identify every sin, nobody could stand before you. So what do we do? Many people just redefine holiness as as not the holiness that God requires of his creatures, but rather as do the best you can do. So it's something instantly achievable. That's a deadly redefinition. And, and finally, Sinai fosters resentment against God. For those who understand that they can't redefine the holiness of God, it's easy then to imagine God has brought us here and he's given us this law that we cannot keep, and that's not fair. He's holding us to this thing that kills us, that will not help us, and that's not right. So without question, the Jews were right. Sinai is a compelling place, but the very things that make it compelling make it deadly. So I, I want to just run over the five things that I see in the passage here. You may see different things, and that's okay. The first is that Sinai was a physical mountain. It could be touched. It existed within the geography of the Sinai Peninsula. It can still be touched right now. In fact, there are two climbing routes to the top of Sinai. One of them starts behind the, the monastery of St. Catherine and is a, just a long footpath. The other one, you ride camels almost all the way to the top and then there's stairs the rest of the way. It's a tourist location. It's a physical place, but a physical mountain can't solve a spiritual problem. And a spiritual problem is, that, is what we have. Sinai was unapproachable as a mountain. We're told that it, it's surrounded by blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a whirlwind or a, a storm, some translations say, or a cloud all of these are physical representations of the glory of God. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. He is no, no more less present with us at this moment than he is in his own heaven. Why, why do we not perceive him here? Because God is spirit. 
The only way for us to perceive God here would be for him to manifest his glory, to manifest his presence in some way. When he manifested his presence to his people, it was fire, darkness, gloom, and a storm. All of that said, do not touch. All of that said, this is an unapproachable place. Sinai was an overwhelming mountain. There was the, a voice that was like the blast of a trumpet. Now, that's, that's not a, an Al Hurt trumpet or a Maynard Ferguson trumpet or Louis Armstrong. That's a ram's horn that, that was used as a warning here. And that, that ram's horn is actually the sound of the voice that was so terrifying that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. They preferred silence. The people said to Moses, don't let him talk anymore. Don't let God talk anymore. We can't bear it. Sinai was a forbidding place. Verse 20 says, they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. Now you would think that that fire, darkness, gloom, and a whirlwind and then trumpet blasts and a voice that can't be understood and that utterly terrifies would be enough to say, stay away. But God felt that it was necessary to tell Moses specifically, if even a beast touches the the mountain, it'll die. That's a very forbidding place to be. And finally, Sinai was a frightening mountain. It's not surprising at all. The end result of fire, darkness, gloom, whirlwind, trumpet, voice that can't be understood, a command that death will follow any, any touching of the mountain leads to terror, terror and fear. Moses himself says, I am full of fear and trembling, filled with dread and anxiety. See, that's the reality of, of Sinai. Those in, in the day that Hebrews was written, who were saying, we need, we need Sinai, we need to stay there, weren't thinking biblically about what that meant. And I want you to think about this too. In the, the intervening centuries and millennia, there have been a lot of different systems of law that have been created by churches and by denominations and by different social groups. There's never been a law so good as the law of God. There's never been a better law. There's never been a better law. If the law of God is unapproachable, overwhelming, forbidding, and frightening, how much more is human religion empty and full of death? We can't improve upon what he has given. What he has given is ultimately deadly I want to expand a little bit on this just to make sure that we're all on the same page and we understand we're not talking about a physical mountain we're talking about the law we're talking about the old covenant which governed the behavior of the people Paul writes in Romans chapter 3 verse 20 by the works of the law No flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law has no power to change anyone. So Mount Sinai, for the people who are there, Mount Sinai could only reveal what was wrong with them. 
could never reveal what was right with anyone. The law had no power over Jesus because he never sinned. He lived perfectly according to it. But ultimately it said nothing about him because there was nothing wrong. The law is like an x-ray or a CAT scan. It can reveal something there, but it can't heal it. It doesn't tell you what to do with it. That doesn't mean the law is bad. The law isn't bad. The law is good. Romans 7.12 says the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good because God gave it. And the Lord said, this is what I require for all humanity. This is the ideal that you wouldn't violate any of this and that you would observe all the positive commands of the law. The law isn't just do not. The law is also do. Jesus perfectly fulfilled that. Jesus perfectly lived according to that. But when you're a sinner, because the law is holy and righteous and good, because of our sin, then there's a collision and there's there's rebellion that takes place. And the law actually incites sin. So Paul writes in Romans 7, verses 7 and 8, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would have not have known about coveting, for example, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Paul isn't saying that before the law was given, he didn't covet. Paul was saying before the law was giving, he didn't know that what he was doing was coveting. But once the law said, you shall not covet, not only did Paul continue to covet, but Paul continued to covet in in new and interesting ways. That's the nature of rebellion. Some try to justify themselves regarding the law by saying something like, well, at least I don't commit murder. At least I don't commit adultery at least i i don't do those types of things what james says is whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of the entire law keep every tenant of the law the 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 jewish tradition says that there are 613 specific commandments within the law keep every one of them your entire life but break one of them once and you're a lawbreaker. And that is permanent now. That is eternal. That is something you can never change. You can't make your mind up to not be a lawbreaker anymore and have that change you. Well, that, that just brings up an obvious question to me and maybe to you. Then why did God give Sinai? Why did he bring them there? Why did he manifest himself there? Why did he reveal himself to them in in this way why did he bring them and then give them a book of the law that they were to to keep that the leaders were to memorize you know the kings of israel were commanded to copy out a copy of the of the law for themselves every king was supposed to do that whether or not they did i don't know why did god give us mount sinai if it's so deadly He, he did it to drive us to zion he did it to, to move us toward Zion. 
Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 says, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. That, that, that is, the, the law does such an excellent job of crushing human pride and achievement that the best person on the face of the earth looking into the law of God can only weep and curse their own sinfulness because they're helpless helpless, and they're damned. But the law drives us to Mount Zion. It drives us to the mountain of grace. And so we read, but you have come to Mount Zion in verse 22 and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to myriads of angels to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks, speaks better than the blood of Abel. I see five things here as well. And again, you might see them in a, in, in a different collection, different categories, and, and that's okay. The first thing that I see is that Zion is spiritual and of course we're speaking of grace zion is a spiritual city it's the heavenly jerusalem it is the capital city of the living god where god himself reigns and rules it's in heaven it's not on earth it can't be touched it can't be felt it can't be seen by us in this world but it exists in heaven and it always has there will never be a tourism industry for mount zion People go to Mount Sinai all all the time. Have to cross the Egyptian border and drive two or three hours to get there, but thousands of people a year go there. Jews, Muslims, Gentiles, Christians, atheists, doesn't matter. All kinds of people go. But there will never be a tourism industry in Mount Zion in that heavenly city. Only citizens are allowed there. No foreigners are allowed. Zion is a holy city. Sinai was a holy mountain for a few weeks. I I don't know when the fire and the darkness and the gloom and the cloud went away, but there was a point where people could go back. And and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, a Catholic monastery called the Monastery of St. Catherine was built on it. Nobody died in the fire. But the holiness of, of Mount Zion is an eternal holiness it is home to myriads of angels verse 22 says now the word myriad in greek that's basically a greek word myriad means ten thousand. it's it's sometimes used to speak of literally the number ten thousand, but usually it means countless and so other places will will see myriads upon myriads which means ten thousands multiplied by ten thousands If you take plural ten thousands multiplied by plural ten thousands, that gives you four ten thousands. If you multiply ten thousand times ten thousand times ten thousand times ten thousand, the best I can figure is you get a trillion. The smallest possible number. So the point here is innumerable, countless. And who are they? They're the holy angels. They're called a general assembly, a joyful assembly, a festal assembly. So... Zion is filled with the holiness of God and with the innumerable holy happy host of heaven. 
the innumerable. I just, I came up with that and it's a little silly, but I like it. The holy, happy host of heaven. That's the angels in heaven. Why? Because it's a, it's a holy place. They fit there. They belong there. Zion is a peaceful city. God's will is perfectly established there. Matthew 6.10 says in the Lord's Prayer, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. His will is accomplished there. So there's no opposition. There's no conflict. There's no disagreement. There's peace. What's more, the only people there, the only human beings there, are children of God. They are enrolled there. They're not visitors. They belong there. It's home. Zion is a welcoming city. God is there as judge. Now, for sinners and for us today who are aware of our own sinfulness, the idea of God, the judge of all, kind of has a a dark cloud over it. But you have to remember, those who are there are the righteous made perfect. The only human beings allowed in Zion are the righteous who have been made perfect. They're they're righteous by the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because of his death on the cross, they are are, uh, made perfect by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. When you arrive in Mount Zion, you will be the righteous made perfect. And God as judge is not there to judge your sin. God is, judge, is there as judge to say, yes, you are righteous and you have been made perfect. You now meet his criteria by his grace and by his work. Every sinner welcomed to Zion by the judge who has justified and sanctified them will feel home as they have never felt at home anywhere else. Linda and I are both from Southern California. I'm from a city called Los Alamitos that sat just a couple of miles off of the the Pacific Ocean. It's been a long time now since I've been there. It's probably been um, since my my dad passed away, which is nine years ago, ten years ago, nine years ago. Los Alamitos is home to me. I could close my eyes now and walk into my old house and go right to my room. I could go right to my parents' room. I could go right into the dining room or the, the living room that was kind of divided in half or go out in the back porch and go where the pool was, which doesn't exist anymore. They filled it in. That's, that's home. No place has ever felt home like that home. Here's the thing. When the Lord welcomes me into Zion... I will feel like I finally arrived home out of a long trip and living out of a suitcase. And I will realize that no place on earth was ever home. I will belong in Zion by faith in Jesus Christ. You will belong in Zion as you never belonged anywhere else. It's a welcoming city. And Zion is a hopeful city. Jesus is there. The mediator is there. The one who is mediated by his own blood. He's mediated the new covenant by his own blood. We're told that his blood speaks better than the blood of Abel. We, we know the story from Genesis 4. Cain killed his brother Abel. The Lord came to Cain and said, where is your brother? And Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said to Cain, your brother's blood cries out to me 
against you from the ground. Jesus shed his blood because of me, because of you. Jesus' blood doesn't cry out against us. Jesus' blood cries out for us. It cries out in defense of us. Cain's blood, Abel's blood cried out against Cain. Jesus' blood cries out in our defense. So there's nothing about Zion that can terrify even the worst sinner because it is the place where grace has been mediated for us. Zion is life and not death. I want to expand on that just for a moment to make sure that we're clear. First of all, Jesus, who mediates and intercedes for us in Zion, is a perfect Savior. He didn't just give us a quick wash, hose us down, and then leave us on our own. Hebrews chapter 7 says this, Therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The the crass way some people have of talking about the perseverance of the saved is once saved, always saved. As, as though once the key has been turned, once the button has been pushed, that's just permanent. And no matter what else happens, everything goes on. The reason we persevere in Christ is that Christ perseveres for us. He continues to intercede for us. He continues to lift us up in prayer before the Father. And because he lives forever, he saves perfectly and he saves completely that's why he says about himself if the son sets you free you will be free indeed in john 8 36 it's a level of freedom we can't begin to understand because we can't understand his ministry the second thing that i think it's so important for us to understand is that jesus is not going to lose a single person who trusts him not one not one he says this in John chapter 6, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. The worst sinner who comes to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith will be born again, washed clean, freed from sin's penalty, power, and presence, filled with the Holy Spirit, transformed from sinner into saint, sanctified, glorified. The worst sinner receives everything. Over the last 2,000 years, I don't know how many born-again Christians there have been, tens of millions, hundreds of millions, hundreds of hundreds of millions. I, I really don't know. But you have to think, and we have to think this way, that because we're people and we think this way, that if there's 100 million, one of those 100 million is the worst Christian. Somebody's at the bottom. There's 20 of us in here or so with with the kids and and everybody in there. Uh, The odds of of one of us being the worst is 20 in, say, 100 million. It's not really high. Out there, somewhere over the last 2,000 years or however much time transpires before the Lord returns, is the worst Christian. 
that's ever been. They're at the bottom of the pile. They're on the back page of the Bible. They're at the bottom of the barrel, back page of the Bible, however you want to put it. You know what we say about the worst Christian who ever lives? He or she is a Christian. Saved by the gospel of grace. Saved by the blood of Christ. And the promise that Jesus has made is I will lose not one. Not one. I don't say that to make you proud of your faith or proud of your relationship with Christ. I say that to give you the encouragement that your salvation is not dependent on you. It's dependent on the one who is promised. By his grace, if you have repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ, Mount Zion is your home. So let's bring this home. Let's think about this now. How do we apply this? He tells us in the text, verse 25, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those who did not escape when they refused him, who warned them on earth... For it, I'm sorry, for if those who did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns about from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he is promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which cannot be shaken, or which can be shaken, as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What do we do with it? First, we don't refuse him who speaks. We don't refuse the one who's given the gospel. We remember that judgment is coming. There is a judgment against the Israelites who refused God at Sinai. There is a greater judgment coming against all of creation. Not just the earth, but also the heaven. And the word shaking is, is used as a description of that, of that judgment. The only thing that can't be shaken is the kingdom of God and those who were in that kingdom. Everything else is shaken. Everything else is brought to destruction. Those who are in Christ have received an eternal kingdom. Those who have already come to him in faith, who heed the call of the Father to repent and believe, inherit an eternal, holy, perfect, flawless kingdom. So we must remember this as Christians and, and for the sake of examining our own hearts and for the sake of those that we know who are unbelievers, we need to remember that those who do not know Christ are under the judgment of God and that they're urged and that they're commanded to repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved and to call upon his name. Romans ten eight through 13 a, a, a fairly good-sized chunk of Scripture, it really comes down to this. If you confess Jesus, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved, for whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the message that the gospel presents. And it presents it to those who want to camp at the base of Mount Sinai and say, I'm good here. I can handle this law. I can either handle the law of God, which of course is not true, or I can handle the law that I've redefined, or I can handle my own internal moral compass. And they, people can't even do that. 
Salvation is just a matter of confessing, repenting, and calling upon the name of the Lord. And then finally, those who have trusted in Jesus are reminded then to remain faithful to him and have this hope that Paul has in Philippians chapter 3. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, that isn't just our sins, but Sinai. And reaching forward to what lies ahead, that's not just resurrection, but Zion, heaven. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the gift that you have given us in the Savior. And I ask, Lord, that as we reflect on this chapter, as we reflect on these words of Scripture this morning, that you will remind us that Sinai brings death. The law brings death. It cannot justify, it cannot forgive, it can only reveal sin. Because we are sinners, the commands of the law actually spur us on to sin even more. That you have given us the law to drive us to Mount Zion, to drive us to the Lord Jesus Christ where there is grace. And would you press these words into our own lives for our sake, for our encouragement, for our growth, and that we could speak the truth of the gospel to those who don't know you. And that by your power, you would cause rebels like us to be born again, to believe the gospel, to come to you in their need. We thank you for your word and we ask that you bless us as we go. send us in your peace, Lord. And in Jesus' holy name we pray, amen.